was actually written right after the Thirty Years' War, and, uh, and it came from within the Thirty Years' War, and it was from a little village where uh, the, the parish pastor had been burying about 20 or 30 people every day. And it was in the midst of that disaster that he wrote the hymn, Now thank we all our God with hearts and hands and voices, who from our mother's arms has blessed us long on the way. It was during the, during the midst of disaster. So if you ever think, I'm not sure I, I know how to thank, the God, uh, thank God for, because things are so disastrous in my life, just take up that hymn and sing it. And I doubt that whatever you're facing is not as bad as what he was facing when he thanked the Lord. Hey, we've been studying Galatians. I want to say thanks to Matt Trehune for his great lesson last week. I know you all enjoyed that and appreciated it. You know, uh, I often say I can't preach a lick, but I sure do have good friends. And uh, Matt's one of them. I appreciate his teaching last night, uh, last week. Uh, and uh, for those of you who prayed for uh, our trip to Ukraine, I just want to thank you. You know, we have so many people around this city who get involved in things in the city and the things around the world. And uh, every once in a while I get to participate too, and it was a great trip. And folks there said to tell you all hello. Uh, Amen Bible study was mentioned by somebody at one point, not me. Uh, but uh, they, they were aware of you and thankful for you. Well, let's turn to Galatians chapter 2, and we've been studying this gospel, the good news from God, and we've seen that it is apostolic, that it has apostolic authority. We've seen that the gospel uh, easily and quickly and broadly gets perverted. So that's been true all through the ages. Don't be surprised that it gets perverted in your age. Don't be su- surprised or overly disappointed that People publish things in newspapers and magazines and journals that undermine the gospel you believe in. It was true in Paul's day. He had to take it up just like you have to take it up. Uh, We've seen that the gospel is the only gospel. It's revealed from God. Paul says it wasn't from men or from the tradition of the church. It was from God directly that we have it. It has divine authority, not just apostolic authority, and that it's the only gospel. Paul says in the first part of chapter 2 that you all are saying, he says uh, to the Galatians, you're listening to these Judaizers who say that the the real authority is in Jerusalem. Those The big cheeses down there, you know, Peter and James and some of the others. But he says, look, I went to Jerusalem and they had nothing to add to this gospel. And they were supportive of this gospel. And they included Titus, who was not circumcised, as one of them. So Paul's laying the foundation for his argument that he's preaching the same gospel as the apostles in Jerusalem. Now, the text today has something very unusual in it, very unusual. In fact, I don't know anywhere else in the Scripture where you'll get an instance like the one that we have. There's a conflict between two apostles. And the ironic thing is Paul's stating this conflict as a way of further showing the authenticity and credibility of the gospel Paul is preaching because he even confronted another apostle about it. Remember Paul said earlier in Galatians 1 that even if you get a message from an angel, may he be condemned if he gives you a message that's contrary to the gospel I'm preaching to you. And here he's going to show us how he even confronted another apostle who is acting in a way contrary to the, apostle, uh, the gospel that the apostle Paul preaches. So it's a further statement of his own credibility and the credibility of his message. But in the midst of it, we, we, we get a great lesson for our own time because there are some very strong people who will actually undermine the gospel in their message and in their behavior. What are you going to do? Well, by God's providence, God shows us what to do in the life of the Apostle Paul, and we have it recorded for us 
by the apostle. So it's a wonderful lesson. It ought to lead us to some deep thinking about how we are living out the gospel and defending it and proclaiming it in our own environments and, and the uniqueness of the gospel itself against all the other messages that are around us. So let's take a look at it. We'll be reading verses 11 through 16. And we're going to look especially at verses 15 and 16 next week. That, In some ways, here is the core of the matter in verses 15 and 16. It may not look like it when you read it uh, first time, but we're going to see next week that here we have the heart of the, of the debate and the heart of the conflict that was going on in Galatians. And uh, I want to just spend a whole uh, Thursday on that. So two weeks from today, next week's Thanksgiving, two weeks from today, uh, you'll bring your underwear and we'll look at verses 15 and 16. <laughs> and by the way, from what I heard at the retreat uh, last year, some of you need to get some new underwear for yourselves. But bring some for those people down at the rescue mission too. All right. Galatians 2, verses 11 through 16. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs. We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law. Because by observing the law, no one will be justified. Amen. Okay. Let us look at this extraordinary experience in the life of the Apostle Paul. And let us learn from it how we too must take up the gospel and how we must rub it into every portion of our life and how we must be on our guard all the time in our homes, in our own hearts, and in our churches and the community. Let's look at verses 11 and 12, first of all. And here we see Christian leaders sometimes oppose the gospel. Why do I say that? Well, (laughs) Peter, (laughs) gosh, Peter, Peter opposed the gospel. This is an amazing statement. Here is an apostle that was wrong. And not only an apostle, but Jesus said of Peter and You are Peter, and on this rock, this Petros, on this Peter, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I mean, there's some Roman Catholic scholars who just do not know how to handle this. And they, actually, some of them have said, this must be another Peter. It can't be, it can't be the Peter who's the first pope. It just can't, it can't be. (laughs) Yeah, it is. And it just goes to show you, gentlemen, uh, some of you from your youth, were trained and taught by some marvelous teachers, 
Some of you have had some great fathers. Uh, and some of you have had fathers in the faith who are marvelous. Some of you have had pastors in your youth. And, and you have a tendency at times to idolize them. And you just can't believe that they would go wrong. But they do. And you must learn to listen to every teacher with your Bible open and your brain enlightened and your heart on fire for the Lord. You have to listen to everybody, including Peter. Now, when it's inscripturated, we know that the Holy Spirit has inspired it. So you don't look critically at that. That looks critically at you. But when you look at a life, even the life of a person who is used to give us the Holy Scriptures, when they're not speaking by the Spirit's inspiration in Scripture, they make mistakes. Everybody makes mistakes. There's only one who didn't. His name is Jesus Christ. And you've got to be sure you're anchored to Him. Anchored to Him. And that is not going to be easy because the way we learn about Him is through other people. If, you, if people ask me, Sandy, who's discipled you? Well, obviously, I could, I could mention a dozen people who have had tremendous influence in my life, for which I'm deeply grateful. But if you really want to know the truth, I would just say the church. The church has discipled me. Now, obviously, Jesus has, but if you ask someone who has flesh and blood and I can see and get my hands on, it's the church. And the reason I say the church is it would be dangerous for me to say, oh, I'm a disciple of this person or I'm a disciple of this person because then I get not only their strengths, I get all their weaknesses too. But if, if, I'm, if I'm discipled by the church, I pick and choose. And so there have been many times, I, I want to go to lunch with you and I want to ask you a specific question because I find something in your life that you're handling marvelously or maybe you've got an experience that I haven't had and God's grace is working in your life in a way that I've not experienced and I want to know about that. I want to learn from you. So I download that from you. But I don't just say, here, my computer's wide open. Just give me all your junk. <laughs> I don't want all your junk. And you shouldn't want all mine. So you've got to pick and choose with people because even Peter, even Peter made a... This, folks, this was not a little mistake. <laughs> this was a whopper. And Peter had been in ministry. I mean, I've been here 15 years at Second Presbyterian Church. That's how long Peter had been an apostle preaching the gospel. How could a man like that make this size of a mistake? Well, they do. So do you. And that's the reason you need friends like Paul. You need the church. You need other men. You need to sit at these tables and you need to share your life and you need to get corrected every once in a while. And once you begin to think that you've been in this thing long enough, you finally got a hold of it, you need to now go into the business of correcting other people, you are in big danger now, we'll see how Peter comes out on this. But, but it, it, is, it is just kind of, I have to admit, I'm shocked, even again, looking at it. How could Peter do this? It's, it's not some peripheral doctor, uh, doctrine. They're not arguing about baptism and church government. <laughs> They're talking about the core of the gospel. And Peter did something that was absolutely contrary to it. So just remember, leaders sometimes oppose the gospel. And you'll notice, A, even great Christian leaders like Peter some people can hardly believe it, but it's true. Uh, it was on a cardinal doctrine, and it was in a very public setting. It, was, it had to be extraordinarily humiliating for Peter. Secondly, uh, notice it's not, e not only even great Christian leaders, but even great Christian leaders who once taught others correctly on this doctrine. <laughs> now, we're told that this whole thing happened, uh, verse 12 when certain men came from James. 
Now, James, as you know, was the, the brother of the Lord Jesus. This is not James the Apostle. James the Apostle, remember, had already been uh, martyred. He, he was one of the first ones to get martyred. This is James, the blood brother, the half-brother uh, through Mary of the Lord Jesus Christ. And very early on, James took the prominent place in Jerusalem. He was kind of the bishop of Jerusalem. And James' teaching is a lot like his brother's. I mean, if you look at the, book, the epistle of James, you'll find great parallels there between what James is saying in the epistle of James and what Jesus was teaching in the Gospels. Well, no big surprise. I mean, James, after he got converted, was instead of thinking his brother was crazy, which he thought early on, he now realized his brother is the Lord, his half-brother is the Lord. And so you find a lot of similarities, and James particularly took up the issue of people who said, well, you can be saved and you don't have to keep the law. And we'll, we'll get into that later when we talk about the, the qualifications on justification that we have to be careful about. But James was very clear to say the law has a place in your life. And once you have been justified, once you've been converted, you're handed back over to the Scriptures and you look at the law and you love the law. David says, I love thy law, O Lord. David meditated on that law day and night. So we love the law and we, it becomes part of our life. It doesn't justify us. It, can, it would condemn us otherwise. But once we're justified, now it becomes our friend. And James was very strong about that, very strong about it. Now, the problem is if you don't teach in a way that's balanced, your disciples will not hear all the qualifications and caveats. And James, some of James' disciples didn't hear all the caveats and all the qualifications. So they taught the law as the heart of the matter, and they missed the gospel. These were people from James. Now, James himself, make no doubt about it, James believed the gospel of justification by faith alone. And you get that clearly in Acts chapter 15 at the Jerusalem Council, which took place immediately after this letter was written, we believe. And you'll see James beating the band to support Paul in his doctrine of justification. So this is not men from James who are representing James accurately. They're men from Jerusalem who have perverted James' teaching about the law and have now made the law something that we must keep in order to be justified. So it's these men who come from James. And they are the ones who influence Peter. Now, look what happens. When they arrived, he, Peter, began to draw back. That word draw back, you can underline in your Bible if you want to. That's a word that comes from... Let me give you the Greek word. It's hupostello. Uh, you might spell that H-U-P-O-S-T-E-L-L-O. Hupostello. What's ironic about this word is the word for apostle is from the Greek word apostello. So look what's happened to Peter. He's been converted from apostello. Apostello means to be sent out. He has been converted from an apostello to now a hupostello. <laughs> Instead of being sent out as a courageous apostle, now he's one who, it's a military term, hupostello. It means he, we shrink back from the battle. So now instead of being sent out, he's shrinking back. It's, it's an ironic use of, of the word. So Paul is saying he began to shrink, little Peter, to draw back. And then look at this. Instead of uniting himself with the church, he separated himself from the Gentiles. Now, look with me at this text that I cite here, Acts chapter 10. You remember the case where Peter, when he first started out, he couldn't believe the gospel was supposed to go to the Gentiles. 
And God had to speak to him in no uncertain terms three times over to convince thick-headed Peter that, you know, nothing, don't call anything unclean when God intends to reach them. And then Peter, this is Acts 10, page 1774. That was an important year in our history, by the way. 1774, uh, two years later especially. Uh, Then Peter said, verse 47 of Acts chapter 10, Can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. Now here's Peter who didn't believe he should enter a Gentile home. He didn't believe the gospel really could be given to the dogs, to the Gentiles. God convinces him of it through a vision. Three times. It took three visions, but finally Peter got it. Then he goes to Cornelius' home. These people receive the Spirit, begin speaking in tongues, and Peter says, well, what do you know? Gentiles can become Christians. And now Peter becomes an advocate. And this, this, was, this was years ago, 15 years prior. And Peter's been teaching the gospel ever since then. So Peter was taught well, and Peter taught others well, and still even great well-taught, effective teacher, Peter, shrinks back from the gospel. Now, can I take a few swats at a few traditions represented in this room? <laughs> now, look, uh, we've already hit the Presbyterians because <laughs> we, we noted earlier on that in this gospel that Presbyterians justify themselves by their orderly doctrine. You know, instead of justifying themselves on the basis of the work of Jesus Christ alone on their behalf, their poor, sinful behalf, uh, they think that if they get the doctrines all right, they're saved. That's Presbyterians. Now, I've caricatured Presbyterians, I'm, but don't, don't worry, I'm going to caricature the rest of you. Uh, but, so we hit the uh, Presbyterians. Now, we also hit the Episcopalians. Of course, the Episcopalians are such an easy target. I don't like to spend a whole lot of time on them. That's, uh, <laughs> doesn't, 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 right, is that right, Shep? Uh, easy target with Episcopalians. So uh, we won't spend a whole lot of time there. Now, the Methodists we don't pick on because we all know how sensitive they are, so let's pass them. But uh, the Roman Catholics we'll get to next week big time when we talk about justification. I hope to lay out for you what the real difference is at the Protestant Reformation and what those issues were about and what, the, what Paul is saying in the text. So we'll, we'll get the Catholics next time. Uh, how about today, let's hit the Christian Church and the Baptists for just a minute. Uh, we got enough of you in here. And let me say, if we, if we look at this, Look at the teaching that was going on here with the Judaizers. These Judaizers, what they were doing... Now, I'm not saying the Christian church and the Baptists are Judaizers, but I think there's something that we can learn here about denominationalism from this text. When you look at the text, the Judaizers, uh, what they were doing is they, they belonged to the circumcision group. See verse 12? And in verse 13, it was hypocrisy on the part of, um, of Peter and those who joined him. So there was some hypocrisy, and we'll get to that in a minute. But the, the fault of the Judaizers was this issue of circumcision, and here's what they were saying. They were saying, you have to believe in Jesus to be saved, okay? We're not debating that. They agreed, you have to receive Jesus to be saved. But then they're saying, and you must also be circumcised, that if you want to be included among the people of God, if you want to be belong to Him, if you want to receive the inheritance of His promises for you, you must you must receive circumcision. It was clear in the Old Testament. They say it's clear for us today. So what they were doing was adding something to the essentials of the gospel itself. Now, that's what I want to pick up on for just a minute. And and what we really need to do is each each of us think about our own traditions. But I'm just going to pick on a couple of you. 
Let's talk about the Christian church. Now, in, in its most conservative elements, uh, the Church of Christ uh, says that you not only must be baptized in order to go to heaven, but you must receive a Church of Christ baptism. Now, I know some of you go to Church of Christ churches where that's not being taught, thank God. But there are some doctrinally committed, uh, I shall say right-wing conservative Christian church folks who do teach that. And if you're in the Christian church or the Church of Christ, you know what I'm talking about. That is a clear violation of the gospel itself. You're adding something to it for someone to be saved. What it takes to be saved is to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior and to, and to live in Him, to be in Him. And we don't add anything to it. You must be very careful about adding anything to it and separating yourself from other true believers who are justified, who are going to heaven, with whom you're going to spend eternity. And you separate yourself from them and you make the statement that they're not real Christians. One better be very careful about that. And I, and I want to challenge those of you in the Church of Christ to, to think that one through. What about the Southern Baptists? Say, what do the Southern Baptists have to do with this? Well, let me, let me give you just one little subtle thing. And this will be particularly true with Southern Baptists. Not all Baptists fall into this category, but I think most of the Southern Baptist churches do. Let me tell you what it is. It's fine for churches here, and we all here disagree on the issue of church government. We disagree on the issues of baptism, who should be baptized, and how should they be baptized. And those debates will go on until Jesus comes back and, of course, explains the Presbyterians were correct all along. But <laughs> until that day, no, I tell you what, when I see Jesus, I expect immediate repentance on a lot of things that I believe. I don't know what they are, all are because I think I'm right. But I know that a lot of stuff's going to fall off that I believed. And, and I will tell many of you, I'm sorry for wrong teaching that I gave you at that time. So I don't know what they are because I'm doing my best. But I know I'm going to be corrected and all of us are. So, but it's one thing to disagree on a, an issue that we would say is not a cardinal issue, correct? I mean, Southern Baptists are not saying that Presbyterians aren't saved uh, because we haven't received their baptism. But here's a more subtle version, I think, of adding to the gospel. If I want to go to a Southern Baptist church and join it, I couldn't until I received their particular baptism in the Southern Baptist church, in most Southern Baptist churches, not all of them, but most of them. I could not join your church until I received your particular baptism, which means you're saying you can't, and some of them have closed communion. You couldn't come to the communion table. You're not qualified for communion until you join the church. So I'm not welcomed at a communion table. Now, I know all Baptist churches don't believe that. But historically, that was the practice among many. But the issue of separating ourselves unnecessarily and adding things unnecessarily to the unity of the brotherhood. So, for example, if I could, if I could write the doctrine in the Baptist church, I would say, okay, look, we, we, we disagree on baptism. You stick with your, your guns. You've got some good biblical points you're making. You believe that it would only be for believers, and you believe that it should be by immersion. I see where you're coming from. I, I see another biblical paradigm that I prefer, but I see your paradigm, and we can disagree on that. But when Presbyterians leave this church and go to your church, why should you revoke the baptism they received here? Which is, in effect, to say your sacraments are not only irregular, they're invalid. So you're, you're claiming the sacraments of another church to be invalid and insisting that they have your baptism before they can enjoy your communion. It just seems to me there's another way to handle that. And that is to say, we, we believe your baptism was irregular. You had it as an infant and you had it by effusion instead of immersion. 
but we believe it's valid because it was a church that you know, believes in the Trinity and uh, it, it, was a, it was a baptism given in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And we disagree on these things, but, but they're not essentials. So I'm just making these comments as a way of our being very careful. And, and, and look, I believe that lessons ought to be given on baptism. I think Baptists ought to teach on baptism. I think Presbyterians ought to teach on baptism because we both have beliefs about the proper way to do this. But when we start separating ourselves, when we start excommunicating each other or invalidating each other's sacraments over something that's an add-on to the gospel of justification, I think we are in error. I think Paul would oppose that. I think he would do it in public. I think I just did too. (laughs) But once again, that may be... Don't send me your emails. Just pray. And... (laughs) And when, when I get to heaven, that may be one thing that just falls right off. Wilson, you shouldn't have said that. Okay, sorry. You know, I let that one go. I shouldn't have said that. But what I'm saying is whether I'm right on that one or not, I find all kinds of times and instances when Christians, I'm talking about Christians now. I'm not talking about unbelievers or nominal churchgoers. I'm talking about Christians who let themselves get divided by adding things on to the gospel. And how much fun is it for us? Just like yesterday, uh, the Hope Community Foundation had a, a banquet there and had several speakers. And we had all kinds of churches represented and different speakers from everywhere. How wonderful it was to sit at tables with Baptists and Methodists and Episcopalians and, uh, you know, all kinds of people. And what a wonderful picture. And, and you, know, you get those moments every once in a while during the year when we gather together. Amen Bible studies is one of them. It's just a joy. To drop these things, don't add to the gospel, and let's focus on the key things. But here's some of the things that I find going on. Uh, there are some church covenants. There used to be in the old days. when, to, In order to join a church, you had to agree not to do, have anything to do with alcoholic beverages. Now, I believe in a personal discipline. If some of you don't want to drink alcohol or you don't want to buy alcohol or you don't want to sell alcohol, that's fine. You can have all kinds of personal disciplines because of the weaknesses in your life. The reason for my disciplines and the reason for your disciplines is because we confess our weaknesses. But for me to say, to communalize that and universalize it and say nobody should join the church if they drink alcohol, I have just added to the gospel. So these, these attempts to be very rigorous sometimes are just divisive. They divide people. They don't unite them. And Paul wanted the church to be united, the Gentiles and the Jews together. Let me give you another example that's really a lot more relevant to us today. I don't know how this room splits up with Republicans and Democrats. I don't know, and I don't want to know. And I hope you don't even know which one I am, if I'm either. But here's what I hear a lot of people saying from time to time. I don't know how a person could support that candidate and be a Christian. Now, I heard liberal Democrats say that about George Bush and people who supported him. And I'm hearing conservative Republicans say that about President Obama and those who voted for him and support him. You know what you're doing? You are adding to the gospel. You're telling me I can't be a liberal Democrat and have intimate fellowship with you and with the Lord and be a full-fledged member and a leader in the church. What are you thinking? You are adding your political views which largely, for you conservatives, come from Rush Limbaugh. And you're adding Rush Limbaugh to the gospel. And I'm saying, you must stop that. I think Paul would oppose that. 
he would say, if it's not justification by faith and you're adding something to it, I mean, look, I've, I've had several of you say to me, I don't know how to pray for President Obama because I disagree with him so much. Really, I, can I say this in public? I didn't say this to you privately. I was a lot nicer. But let me just be ugly in public. What are you thinking? When Paul wrote Timothy and told him to pray for those in authority, do you know who was in authority? Nero. I'm telling you something. President Obama, if he's anything, he is a nice guy. He is not Nero. And he has some serious concerns that Christians ought to be grateful for, like caring for the poor and being nice to people overseas. He had, they're, they're, I don't care what you think politically, and I'm not saying I'm defending either George Bush or Obama. I'm just saying they're very different. And when one of these very different candidates get in office, this whole group over here thinks you can't be a Christian if you follow him. And this whole group over here thinks you can That's exactly what's going on here. You can't be a Christian if you're not circumcised. You can't be a Christian if you don't stick to these traditions, if you don't speak to stick to this view, if you don't do what these people do, if you don't belong to that group. And I'm just saying, in your church, I think you and I must be very careful because we all have our political views. We all have our social views. We all have our views of how law ought to be put into, into place in society. And we must be very careful that we do not exclude, withdraw, and separate unnecessarily from true brothers and sisters who may have different views on that. And you know what I've found through the years? I found that my views have changed because I've been talking to people like you. And then I've been talking to people not like you. And I've been listening. And you know what? I'm still learning. I'm still learning. And, and we should all be learning. And that's the advantage of focusing on the basics. When you get your life anchored on what really matters, what really does separate people, and I tell you what really does separate people, those who know Christ and those who don't know Christ. And there's going to be a huge separation. It's called sheep and goats at the end. And there is no other separation that really makes any difference. And Paul makes that point in Galatians 3, 26, 7, 8, and so on, when he says, there is now no longer male nor female, Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free. Those differences don't matter anymore. So we have one difference that matters. It's the difference on the core doctrine issue of how one is justified before God. We'll get to that next week. Don't add other stuff in your life. Be very careful with your attitudes and the things that you say and the alliances you make. Be very careful with it. Be sure you're a gospel man. Above everything else, you're a gospel man. You're not a Republican first and foremost. You're not a Democrat first and foremost. You're a gospel man. And let me tell you what happens if you're a gospel man. What's going to happen to you is the same thing that happens to the Apostle Paul. You end up confronting people and disagreeing with people. If you're a Republican, there is no way you can be a gospel man and spend most of your time throwing bricks at the Democrats because you're so aware of your own problems. If you're a Democrat, there's no way you can spend most of your time throwing bricks at the Republicans because you've got all kinds of problems. You're a gospel man. And the first commitment you have is to confront the people around you. Paul confronted Peter around him, his close apostolic colleague. And you, you will find, if you're a gospel man, you will find plenty of work, plenty of things to do with your life, your family, your church, and your political party, and your business. And every once in a while, you can engage the arguments that are broader than that where you disagree with somebody on the other side of a political issue. Just watch the focus. That's, that's how I would apply this uh, second point that even great Christian leaders who once taught others correctly can be led astray. Now look at C. And Paul here explains 
explains the motivations. This is very helpful, gentlemen. Paul is doing a little psychoanalysis, a little religio analysis, and he says, because, here's why he did it, 12b, because he was afraid. Peter was afraid. And what's so ironic, this text I mentioned here, Acts 5.29, Peter faced the entire Sanhedrin. He faced the strongest religious council in the entire world. And he told them, whom shall we obey, you or God? And he stood up to them at the risk of his own life and his own comfort and his own pleasure and his own estate. He was willing to be imprisoned and put to death in that moment. And here he is, just like he was in Matthew 26, when a little slave girl came to him and says, aren't you a follower of Jesus? Don't know the man. <laughs> just terrified. A little girl <laughs> scared him to death. And then a little girl said it again. Aren't you with the Nazarene? No, I don't know him. He was scared to death. And then everybody says it. And he called down cursing on himself. Well, I'll be damned if I know him. That's basically what he said. That was Peter in Matthew 26, before his conversion, before he had the Spirit. Well, we all know the Spirit solves everything, doesn't it? <laughs> Here's Peter, full of the Spirit. Well, he wasn't full, but he had the Spirit living in him. And he had repented of all that. And now Peter had stood before the Sanhedrin. And now here he is reverting to his old behavior. Gentlemen, that happens to us. And what I've found is the same patterns of sin, they're in my life before my conversion, they're the ones that plague me now. And if you're not very careful, they just keep coming back. And if, if, uh, if you're careful with your life, you will take note of these things and you will put in disciplines in your life. Some of you uh, have a very strong, almost compulsion to view pornography, to be engaged in it. Now, I don't, I'm no psychologist. I don't know all the reasons for this. I know some of them. But there's something in there that is, in your life, makes you a, a, a potential addict. And you must put disciplines in your life that other men around you may not have to do. Now, I think most of you are naive about how attracted you are to pornography and don't have enough disciplines. But there's some of you who particularly, you're just candidates waiting to be picked off by the evil one. And so you must put in special disciplines. Some of you can't handle alcohol very well. One drink is just not enough for you. You can't drink one drink. You have to go to three, four. By the time it's all over, your wife is helping you out to the car and, you know, fussing at you and all that. And you've embarrassed yourself and your family and lost, you know, any opportunity you had to be a testimony for Christ and all the things that go with alcohol abuse. Some of you just need to give it up. I mean, you know, you just can't handle one drink. Just stop trying, will you? Just put in a special discipline. There's nothing wrong with drinking Diet Coke. I can tell you I do it all the time. Just Or whatever you want. Uh, uh, my African-American friends tell me, that's a white man's drink. Well, so, all right, iced tea, whatever it is, you know, that everybody else drinks. Um, but find a drink. Find a drink that works for you, you know? So you have a special discipline. Peter had a weakness. And the weakness was he would cave in when... Uh, he would lose his popularity or he was threatened in some way socially. I mean, just look at the record. He did this over and over again. And he had a tendency to cave in. Peter just needed to be very careful. Unfortunately, he had friends like the Apostle Paul who would correct him. And so just take note of it that here it is fear. And that is the same motive that oftentimes moves us off of our core commitments. If you'll look at the end of Galatians, in Galatians chapter 6, Look at verses 12 and 13. He says, those who want to make a good impression outwardly, this is verse 12, those, this is the Judaizers, those who want to make a good impression outwardly, that's, that's their motive. 
are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. So not even those who are circumcised obey the law, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your flesh. So you see two motives there. They want to boast. They want to make a good impression. And that's the way you and I are. We want to be in the right crowd. We want to be accepted by the important people. And a lot of the important people don't like the distinctive truth of the gospel. And so we're going to be tempted to side with them and to compromise our convictions because we don't want to lose our boast with those who look upon us. We, don't want, to, we want to continue to make a good impression upon them. And then we fear being persecuted. Just like the Judaizers. That's, Paul says that's where they're coming from. People who distort the gospel have motives. And the motives are pride and fear. And so if you are subject to those, which every man is to some degree, you must be aware of it and take measures against it. What was, what was Peter afraid of in this text? What could he be afraid of? Well, the Judaizers would marginalize him. It's just that simple. He was afraid of being marginalized by heretics. <laughs> I know it makes no sense. Uh, I wish Peter were here to explain himself. But you know what? I don't think he needs to because you and I do the same thing. Just think when you've given away, you've given away some of your convictions. Why did you do it? And you get in the car and you're driving home and you say, what an idiot! Why didn't I say something? Or why did I say that? Or why did I do that? It was just stupid fear of little things. And that's what leads us off base. So, look, even great Christian leaders who have shown remarkable courage in the past can sometimes oppose the gospel. We need to be aware of ourselves doing that. We need to be aware that other people will do that. And that means we all need to be corrected. Now, secondly, and we'll move more quickly, verse 13, Christian leaders who oppose the gospel do massive damage, or we could say can do massive damage, because, number one, many will follow. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy. So when the Judaizers came up there, the ones from a Jewish background immediately caved in because Peter caved in. Every one of you has influence with people. Every one of you has somebody watching you. Everybody has that. You have people who are younger or younger in the faith who are looking at you, who are influenced by you. When you cave in, you've just encouraged about 14 other people to cave in. And you don't even know who they are. And frankly, you, didn't, you had no idea that half of those people were watching you or would be that influenced by you. you. You thought you had confidence that they would make decisions contrary to the way you make decisions. If you make a mistake, it's not a big deal. It's a big deal because many are going to follow you when you make your mistakes. That's the reason that rooting your life in the gospel is crucial for your life and for everybody around you. This is a social, this is a social gospel, if you will. It affects many, many other people. Secondly, even other strong leaders are led astray. Look at this. this now, I'll tell you what. Now, this is more amazing than Peter going astray. Barnabas was led astray. That blows my mind. I hardly even know how to speak to this. Barnabas? Barnabas fought with the Apostle Paul. He fought for the conversion of the Gentiles. Barnabas was commissioned with Paul and went on the first missionary journey to the Gentiles. Barnabas 
was the one who went to Syrian Antioch in the first place. You remember? Sent by the leaders in Jerusalem to find out what was going on up there in Syria, in Antioch, because they had heard that Gentiles were becoming Christians. Barnabas was sent up there because he was from Cyprus, and uh, many of the ones getting converted were from there. So they thought, well, he knows the customs and everything. We'll send Barnabas, and he's a nice guy, and he gets along with people. Barnabas goes up there. He comes back and reports and says, this is the real thing. Then you remember Barnabas was the one who then trekked 100 miles by foot. He goes up and gets the Apostle Paul, convinces him to come back to Syria and Antioch. And then you have the Apostle Paul, who's a Sunday morning preacher, and Barnabas, who's a Sunday school teacher. These guys are working together, building that church of the Gentiles together. It was the first great missionary church, and it was the staging ground church for all of the Gentile mission for the first century of Christendom. This is Barnabas. I'm, I'm staggered. And all I can say is it just shows again that, you know, when, when somebody who has influence strays from the gospel, you just, you find people like you. You all are leaders. You find people like you who will be influenced. It just amazes me. Gentlemen, watch your hearts. Even a colossal leader like Barnabas was led astray. The power of group thinking is seen here. I guess, you know, I can think of an illustration. Uh, I mean, you probably know one of, one of my heroes. I usually wait until they die because you never know what they're going to do at the end of their life. <laughs> you know, like a, a Solomon, you know. Solomon started off so well and then he blew it with his 800 wives or whatever in concubines. So I usually don't have heroes until they're dead. But, you know, with Billy Graham, you can't help yourself, you know. But even with Billy, you, you remember the story that just kind of rocked all of us, you know, who appreciate his ministry when... When he was in a private conference with President Nixon, and of course Nixon taped everything, and in that private conference, Nixon made some, some scurrilous comments about the Jews. Just, just ant- flat-out anti-Semitic comments. And Billy Graham's response was anything but corrective. It was kind of, you know, a comment that kind of passed it off or just went along with it. And of course, it just rocked the Christian world about 10 years ago when this came out and, and Dr. Graham uh, apologized for it. And of course, his whole life was characterized by loving people of all kinds. He, he loves Jewish people. We all know this. His life characterized it. But here was a huge mistake in a private conference that he didn't know was being taped and he got caught red-handed. I'd say, here's Barnabas, a guy who's had colossal influence, who obviously loves the Gentiles, has ministered to them, led them to Christ and discipled them. And here he falls because Peter was afraid. So Peter took himself down and took Barnabas with him, at least for the moment. And then look what happens. See, a united church becomes a divided church. And that's often how it happens. It's because of men who start taking sides and get polarized and marginalized based on popularity and who they like. And they take sides. And they don't get themselves rooted in the gospel and look for gospel solutions. They don't analyze the problem based on the gospel, and then they don't apply gospel solutions to the problem. And, you know, we see this in our churches, where you have churches that otherwise could be unified, and somebody gets off the gospel, starts adding to it, and polarizing and making party spirit. And then the people who are responding to it in leadership don't respond with the gospel and call for repentance and faith anew among the people. And the answer is to call for repentance and faith and then we'll see a gospel solution to the problem. And I'm telling you, in our own city, 
Our, our mayor, you know, mentions his priorities. Just look at them. Safety and security in our neighborhoods, uh, economic development, especially minority business development, and our schools. And let me tell you something. These things are going to be solved by people like you who believe the gospel. And you're going to look for gospel solutions to all those things in our community. And that's going to unite our community. And the mayor is saying one Memphis. I'll tell you, I just, uh, I'm sorry if this is a political statement, but I love our mayor. I'm grateful for him. And it talks about one Memphis. I'll tell you, there's only one way to get one Memphis. People start acting in accord with the gospel. I just listened to him yesterday. And he gave a speech. He didn't say anything. I don't think he ever used the word Jesus Christ. He didn't use the word gospel. But everything that he was doing was consistent with the gospel. And so in your work, be sure that your policies and your reactions to things and your ambitions and the vision and strategy for your company are all consistent with the gospel. Now, thirdly and lastly, verses 14 through 16, as I said, we'll pick this up next time and talk about this uh, most important issue that was the purpose of the whole letter. But here we learn that Christian leaders who oppose the gospel must be opposed. When Christian leaders oppose the gospel, or I would say when Christians in general oppose the gospel, they must be opposed. And thankfully they were here. Paul says, when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. Just stop right there. When they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, verse 14. That's what triggers our behavior. If When there's behavior that contradicts the gospel. Now, Peter didn't come in and say, gentlemen, I've changed my views on justification through faith in Jesus Christ. I think you need to add circumcision to that. Peter didn't do that. He would have been a flaming heretic if he'd done that. What he was here was a failed Christian, not a heretic. He simply acted out of accord with the gospel. In other words, his actions, and that's what I was saying a moment ago, if we look in all of our traditions, we may not be denying the gospel, but we may be acting in a way contrary to the gospel. And when we do, that requires action on our part. Not harsh action, gentle action, but gentleness in the truth. And you'll see, first of all, it doesn't matter who it is. He said, I said to Peter. Paul says to Peter, wow. <laughs> Wouldn't you have loved to have been a fly on the wall if you could have understood Hebrew, of course, uh, or Aramaic or Greek or whatever they were talking about. But he, no matter who they are, Peter. I mean, consider Luther's life. And, you know, I've already been critical of Luther, and I'm going to be more critical of Luther before this study is over because... Uh, I think Luther was right about the core of the matter here, but he was wrong about a lot of things in my opinion. But think of the immense courage when Luther stood up even to the Pope. Even to the Pope. I mean, you'd have to be a Roman Catholic to understand what that means, to stand up to the Pope and his cardinals and to stand up before the prince and his prince, princes, uh, the, the king and his princes, in Germany. And to, I mean, don't think for a minute that Luther just coolly walked in there and said, here I stand, I can do no other. Luther was sweating bullets. He was terrified. In fact, Luther asked for a night to think and pray about it when he was told to recant. He was, he was terrified. He said, let me pray about this. I mean, he was thinking, Lord, is there some way that I can do what the cardinals are demanding of me and still hold to my conscience? And finally, with feeble voice, he stood before them, shaking and trembling, sweating and said, I'm sorry, I'm bound by my conscience. I can do no other. So it's terrifying when you stand up to authority. But we must learn to do it when it is necessary. And notice that Paul, Paul in verse 11, 
opposed Peter to his face. He didn't do it behind his back. He went to his face. He didn't, he didn't say, let's wait till Peter leaves the room. How do you know that? Peter, he is really off base. Gosh, don't listen to Peter. No. Peter, you're behaving like a Jew who can associate with Gentiles, and now you're telling the Gentiles they need to act like Jews. Now, where's that coming from, Peter? Right to his face. So uh, we must learn to use Matthew 18. Go right to people's face. Talk to them mostly in private. But here you'll notice, secondly, B, it was public. We must oppose them as publicly as their sin. He says he did it in front of them all. Well, why? Well, look at 1 Timothy chapter 5, and that's to be found on page 1959. Another good year. Uh, And look at... 1 Timothy 5.20, and he says, he's talking about elders here. He says in verse 19, 1 Peter 5.19, do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. But then look at how we're rebuked. Those who sin are rebuked publicly so that the others may take warning. So for those of you who are officers in your church, if you sin at this level in public, you really should be corrected in public. Because the effects of your sin have gone public. And for people to be restored, the correction needs to happen in public. So I don't know what your forms of church discipline are, but in a reform system where we have elders, uh, sometimes there are censures in the church. People are corrected sometimes formally by the elders. And that correction should take place at the same level publicly as the sin has been distributed. So the repentance should be more famous than the sin. So, for example, in our church, we have about 22 adult communities in the church. And uh, they meet in various places for Sunday school every Sunday. If there's a, someone who, uh, let's say, commits fraud in a pub, uh, public way and everyone in that class knows it, then if he's an unrepentant, he might be corrected. He ought to be corrected publicly in front of all of his friends who know what's going on. Because they're affected by this too. They're thinking, oh, fraud, I guess it's not that big a deal. Christians do that. No, Christians do do that, but they get corrected for it. And if you do it, you'll be corrected for it. And there's a warning that goes out among the people. Notice that's exactly what Paul did. He was giving us a pattern for how people should be corrected. I've, I've told our session, if, if I did something like this, I would need to be corrected before the entire church because I'm a public officer in the church. If you're a public officer, uh, you need to be corrected in a way that's good for the church, not just you. We're not, I mean, we're concerned about your reputation. We protect reputations around here to the best of our ability. But when you take spiritual leadership, you are liable for public correction. And notice that Peter was. Peter got publicly corrected by his brother apostle, his brother pastor. It was in front of them all. Then notice verses 15, 16 that we'll pick up with next time. I just simply want to say this. There was biblical rationale. We're corrected with biblical rationale. And Paul gave it in verses 15 and 16. He gives biblical reasons for the correction. So you would never correct one another formally without a clear biblical reason for it. You give rationale to one another. You don't just say, well, I just think you're you're not a very nice person. No, you say, you said this and this contradicts this scripture verse. Now, let's close with this. We've got four minutes and and I really want us to look carefully at what happens. You'll notice uh, in Matthew 18, verse 15, that Paul says, I'm sorry, Jesus said uh, that we should go to one another and show him his fault. That's what Jesus means. Show him his fault. Be particular about it. What was the event that happened or the words that were said and what is the biblical truth that's being violated? 
And that's what the Apostle Paul did here. He said, Peter, you acted this way and it denies this doctrine. So he was very careful about what he did. He was just and fair in what he said. And we must be the same way. Now I want us to notice that in this most amazing encounter among apostles in all the Bible, what we have is the most amazing outcome. (laughs) Peter repented. I love this guy. (laughs) He's unpredictable like me. He's flighty. He says things. He shoots from the hip like me. He gets into trouble like me. I mean, I really identify with Peter. And what I love most about him is his repentance. And you see this over and over again in his life. He denies Jesus three times. And then Jesus asks him three times, Peter, do you love me after the resurrection? And (laughs) Peter says, Lord, you know all things you know that I love you. And Jesus says, well, okay, feed my sheep. (laughs) And here Peter... Now, as a spiritual man, an apostle in the church, fails massively. And what does he do? He repents. Now, why do I say that? We don't have time to look at it. But in Acts chapter 15, verses 8 through 11, you might want to just write that down. Acts 15, 8 through 11. Look at Peter's speech the next year at the council in Jerusalem. And he defends the mission to the Gentiles. He says, why should we burden them with these things, this circumcision? Peter becomes an outspoken advocate for uncircumcised Gentiles to be included as full brothers in the church. And he's making the speech. He stands up at the General Assembly and makes the speech the next year. He makes ready repentance. He he acknowledges that he was wrong. And you can also look at a text we studied, I guess, last year, 2 Peter. Look at 2 Peter chapter 3, especially verses 14 and 16. And Peter makes reference to Paul's writings as the Scriptures. He doesn't get angry at Paul and write Paul off and say, well, that's why you're going to be with me. Then you just go your way and I'll go my way. And then, no, Peter totally connects with a brother who corrected him. What a marvelous apostle. I love Peter. I mean, Paul, you have to hold in high esteem. Just colossal intelligence, faithful to the end, struggling with all kinds of dangers and threats to his life throughout his ministry. What a wonderful apostle. But Peter, I just, I love this guy. He's, he's giving it his best shot. He ends up, tradition tells us, being crucified upside down because he was unworthy to be crucified right side up, he said. And he gave his life for the gospel as Jesus had predicted in John 21. He was faithful to the end, but he had his struggles because he was Peter and he fully repents. And just like the Wizard of Oz, you know, the lion wanted courage. <laughs> you know, Peter wanted courage and God gave it to him so that at the very end he repents And he honors the Lord, not only in his life, but in his death. So gentlemen, let's just be aware. Christian leaders can undermine the gospel. Sometimes we do. And sometimes it's thoughtless. We don't even know what we're doing. And we need to be corrected and we need to correct others. And we need to realize that we're responsible for this. And sometimes we do massive damage. But there's a way of repentance. Because in the fellowship of the brothers, we do oppose each other. We do challenge each other. And we can take shots at each other, not just denominationally, but personally. Because we need to. Because we all tend in different ways to stray. And the wonderful thing about the gospel, the very gospel they were arguing about, the very gospel they were proclaiming and defending, the very gospel Paul opposed Peter about, that very gospel is what enabled Peter to be a repentant man and to be a fabulous apostle. And it's the same gospel They will enable you to recover from any failure whatsoever. 
You may have to be uh, corrected in private. You may have to be corrected in public. But if Peter can recover and be the great apostle Peter, so can you and so can I. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this gospel. May we learn not only to proclaim it and defend it, no matter who opposes us, but may we learn to believe it and to put it into practice and enjoy its rich benefits in our lives. And we thank you for the man, Peter, who humbled himself, gave up his own pride and his public reputation at times in order to draw nearer to you and to know you better through the gospel. May we be men in that tradition. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all.